Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, why China is getting more dangerous as it grows weaker. But first, Joining us is uh, retired Royal Navy Admiral Sir George Zambellis, the 100th uh, First Sea Lord of the Royal Navy, uh, somebody who is uh, a good friend as well as a strategic consultant now. He's joining us to discuss uh, the elevation of the 102nd First Sea Lord, uh, Admiral Sir Tony Radican, who will become the 24th Chief of Defense Staff uh, of the United Kingdom to succeed uh, General Sir Nick Carter, who will be uh, retiring or leaving his post, I should say, on November the 30th. George, thanks so very much for joining us. It's always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Raga, great to be with you. Uh, an absolute uh, pleasure. Before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And Rafael USA is sponsoring our upcoming coverage of the Association of the United States Army's annual conference and trade show. I should also point out, Fincantieri Marinette Marine uh, sponsors our naval coverage. Sir, thanks very much for joining us. Nick Carter was working on a transformation uh, of the British military, looking at cultural elements of it, driving innovation fa uh, faster, um, doing novel organizations, uh, trying to reduce bureau bureaucratic footprints. Uh, and so there's this sense that this announcement is being seen as essentially a validation of the strategy that you were a key uh, member of executing, uh, building this stronger naval capability. Obviously, uh, HMS Queen Elizabeth and her task group are still in Asia, um, and, and sort of an acknowledgement of, of sort of the global role that the United Kingdom through the Royal Navy uh, has played without putting any of the other services down. From your standpoint, what are the things that he should think about? If you were advising him, what would you advise him to be focused on? I think it's very um, it's very hard to ignore uh, the extraordinary strategic message that's come out of the AUKUS um, announcement, and you might want to return to that. I mean, that is a, a an almost unparalleled strategic signal when you refer back to the um, to the 1958 um, uh, UK US mutual defence um, agreement that was that was signed. So what we're really seeing, I think, is a realization that the acceleration of military capability can't continue as it has done in the sort of steady state relationship between resources and delivery. I think we're in a new place. And I think Tony Radikin is somebody who instinctively understands that and has driven that hard both in the Navy and in defense. What, what do you think some uh, specific issues need that need most addressing, right? I mean, you've made the point that, uh, as you just did, right? We just can't keep doing the same thing, hoping for more resources. We have to fundamentally start to rethink this equation. And in many respects, I should, I should really uh, give kudos uh, to Queen Elizabeth, even though there are Americans who sometimes view the ship as somehow not um, what it is they're used to. It is an incredible demonstration that if you think through the problem, you can deliver a lot of capability for actually a fraction of, of the money um, than others would spend. What are, what are some of the things from your standpoint that need rethinking when it comes to UK military capability um, in, in, a, in a time of both potential peril, but also transition? Well, I think we're, we're really leaving behind the, um, 
the complacency that emerged post-Cold War and was perpetuated by um, effectively conventional, tactically-centered land wars. And now what we're seeing is a, is a reset between the available resources and the acceleration to match uh, the threat development that's gone on and will go on for the next 10, 15, 20 years. So, so I think what we're observing in simple terms is a, a, a strategic reset that balances resources to accelerated threat development. How do, how do we need to think about acceleration and drive it more quickly? You're, you're one of the folks who thinks that we need, do need a complete paradigm shift. You were kind enough to join us for one of our Andy Marshall series uh, strategy conversations. What's the paradigm shift that's, that's necessary sort of across the piece, looking at equipment, thinking, approach, because we, we are in a completely new situation? We are, we are far better. And I think that um, I said it before, and uh, if I may, I'll say it again. Um, it's really about the, the need for strategic leadership, by which I mean resource control at a national level, to, to take the courage of investing in both the perpetuation of the conventional for reasons of um, current national safety, but also the aggressive pursuit of new technologies and innovation. And those two don't necessarily sit comfortably together because one is a, an expenditure of public resource in the, in the usual rules of, of, of you know, propriety and, and good behavior and uh, uh, an absence of waste. And the other is, is an experimental journey, which may well hold uh, errors and waste within it as one finds new and smart ways to, to achieve military effectiveness. Um, so, so, so it is a strategic level leadership issue. You know, there, there are those who lament that in the wake of the Cold War, the strategic, the, the degree of strategic thinking, whether in the United States or its allies and partners, uh, decayed uh, somehow. Um, do you think that it's being rebuilt quickly enough uh, at the senior ranks of the UK military from your perspective? I think the senior military are going through a process of, of awakening as to, driven by the threats that, that exist, um, which are often pursued uh, and seen in, in technological terms, you know, hypersonic missiles and uh, advanced cyber techniques, etc. But But the reality is that um, the intrinsic fear, which drives uh, which drives performance, uh, drives resource expenditure, drives leadership. The fear of the Cold War era, which was a real and tangible threat, um, has not been replaced in the last um, 30 years by anything uh, of the same sort. And now we see a resurgence of capabilities and the change of the balances, the changing balance of power globally. And you, I think you're going to touch on this with China's own position. Which, which requires uh, a game-changing attitude um, in our own perspectives. That, of course, is uncomfortable in Western liberal democracies who want to spend money on education and health, but that's the truth. We, we've got a brief amount of time left, and I want to spend it a little bit on the uh, UK-US-Australia uh, submarine deal. You and I spoke uh, hours after uh, the de deal was announced, and you noted what a difficult endeavor it is to raise mm. and to maintain a nuclear mm. uh, capability, uh, a nuclear mm. naval capability, 
nuclear undersea mm. capability. Um, what 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 do leaders, whether they're in the United States, the UK, or Australia, need to bear in mind um, as we approach the next eighteen months in negotiating the deal? I, I've said I think the most logical thing is for the astute class uh, to go into production uh, for a whole variety of reasons, in part because the United States is so focused on two Virginia tax subs and one Columbia year. But from your perspective, what what's the way to do this? Do it fast and do it or as fast as we can safely and do it right? Well, I think um, the first thing we need to do is acknowledge that the US and Australia have together um, now banked, cashed the check, so to speak, Vargo, of, um, of the strategic message of their uh, joint endeavor. And it's an extraordinary thing that has happened. It's an extraordinary thing for the United States to have declared it intends to effectively share some of its most precious um, capabilities in technology um, with a sister nation for the purpose of strate strategic advantage. A very rare thing has occurred. So having, having banked that and cashed that check, um, the message is out. Now it has to be followed up with action. And I personally think that there's, there's two threads to that. The first is the underlying performance of the Australians now in the military sphere has to be raised in conventional terms, in terms of uh, expertise, leadership, um, uh, ambition for experimentation. There has to be a sort of sea change in the what you might call the receptiveness of, of this Australian machine. And I believe they absolutely are up for that. And, uh, and um, they are exhibiting all the right signs of political continuity and resource commitment to make that possible. And the second part is, is is a very, very long and difficult journey towards nuclear propulsion ownership. And whether that's what you might call a sort of lend-lease system or a part ownership or whatever combination of effects it is, that is still a huge challenge for any nation. And none of us uh, ever exaggerate just how many years and how many billions that will cost. But that's the price of strategic delivery. And if that's the agreement, then so be it. Um, how long do you think, what's the reasonable time interval, right? I mean, um, I, my view is the sooner we do this uh, with embedding personnel, uh, getting Australians on UK subs, UK even transferring a sub uh, over there, and certainly forward basing will help. But the country doesn't have a nuclear industry either, unlike the United Kingdom, which has had a nuclear industry for very many decades. How, how long yeah, well, is the reasonable interval here to get that capability to the Australian. Well, when I think that, I mean, uh, you can play games here, but I think the shortest of the pieces of string is to start embedding Australian personnel uh, into the UK or even the US submarine program. Both of those are, uh, are a reinforcement of the strategic signal that's being sent. And that would be a quick and easy start. That, of course, starts to achieve um, expertise and grow um, experience. All of that is, is good stuff. The other end of the spectrum is, um, is the possibility of operating um, from uh, an Australian base with the appropriate nuclear and safety regulatory uh, mechanisms in place. And that's probably, frankly, a five, five to 10 year journey. And the other end of the spectrum, of course, Vargas, if you actually want to build the stuff, just look no further than the experience of the Brazilians and you're talking decades. Um, so, so going back to my earlier point about reinforcing a strategic message in the region in partnership, 
uh, it's very important to make sure there's a continuity of delivery, both in conventional and in the nuclear journey. George, thanks so very much for joining us. It's always an honor and pleasure having you on the program and uh, want to have you back on again soon uh, to have a little bit of a deeper uh, discussion on innovation. Thanks so very much. You're welcome. Word from our sponsors, General Motors Defense sponsors our technology coverage and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all domain command and control. And joining us now is Dr. Hal Brands, the Henry A. Kessinger Distinguished Professor of Global Affairs at Johns Hopkins uh, School of Advanced International Studies, who is also a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. He and Michael Beckley, an associate professor uh, of political science at Tufts University, um, and who is also a visiting scholar at AEI, co-wrote the thought-provoking September 24 article in Foreign Policy, uh, China is a declining power, and that's the problem. The United States needs to prepare for a major war, not because its rival is rising, but because of the opposite. He is also the author of the upcoming book out in January, Twilight Struggle, What the Cold War Can Teach Us About Great Power Rivalry Today. Hal, it's an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, and I should also point out that uh, hopefully uh, soon, uh, at least after your book is out, you'll join us uh, for one of our uh, series of conversations with strategists uh, dedicated to the memory uh, of Andy uh, Marshall. Uh, and uh, I should point out that this is right in, you know, sort of Andy's wheelhouse in terms of the, the twilight struggle. Um, talk to us a little bit about this article you and, and Michael wrote, uh, because it is in many cases on the mark and mirrors a concern that I have, that China actually becomes much more dangerous as it weakens. Xi Jinping's policies are actually weakening the country. At the same time, its military capabilities are increasing. And the minute that they think that their window is closing, they may actually be inclined to take action uh, as opposed to do it from a position of, of, of strength. Walk us through what you uh, your model for this is uh, and what policymakers should be aware of at what is an exceptionally dangerous and getting more dangerous window of Sino-American relations. Absolutely. I think in some ways our model is an inversion of the familiar idea of the Thucydides trap. And so the Thucydides trap basically holds that war between an established power and a challenging power is most likely when the weaker weaker state starts to overtake the stronger state, and you get a spiral of insecurity that leads to conflict. We, we actually start from a little bit of a different spot. And our argument is that if you look at history and you look at cases such as World War One, revisionist powers, so countries like uh, Imperial Germany that wanted to shake up the international system, started to act most aggressively when they realized that their power was peaking and starting to decline when they started to worry whether they would actually be able to accomplish their objectives peacefully. And that led them to take greater risks and act with greater belligerence than they had before. To bring it to the present, our argument is that China finds itself in a similar position today. We often think about China as a rising power. I think it's more accurate to think about it as a risen power, risen in the sense that it has developed really formidable capabilities in the military sphere Uh, and in other respects, but also risen in the sense that its best days, economically, demographically, politically, geopolitically, are arguably behind it. And so our concern is that uh, Xi Jinping has staked out some very ambitious objectives 
for China, everything from achieving unification with Taiwan to making China the foremost power in the world. And as China's trajectory starts to nose downward in the second half of this decade and after, uh, will he be willing to take more risk in pursuing those objectives as the future starts to look darker and darker and he starts to doubt uh, whether China is going to overtake the United States after all? And we think the answer is yes. I should point out that you're kind enough to be having this conversation from the airport. Uh, so thank you very much uh, for, for, for taking the time uh, while you've been on the move. Um, what are some of the metrics that you guys are looking at to make that conclusion, right? You may mention the Thucydides uh, trap. Dr. Graham Allison, who is uh, one of the proponents of this and certainly wrote a, a thought-provoking book of his own uh, on uh, China joined us recently for one of our Andy Marshall uh, series conversations. And of course, you know that, that Graham and Andy were very close. Um, you know, and, and he notes that actually the Chinese are becoming more dangerous in part because of this challenge that their power may be peaking. In fairness, you wrote the book four years ago. Um, and that dialogue is more important and certainly deterrence becomes more important. From your standpoint, what are the metrics you guys are looking at to draw the conclusion that the Chinese are actually peaking, you know, aside from some of the obvious things we're seeing, right? Crackdown on, on, on business, crackdown on billionaires. These guys are engines of the Chinese economy. And moreover, the wolf warrior uh, diplomacy is actually backfired by unifying the entire world against China. But what are some of the metrics you guys are looking at? Um, so we, start, we start with the, the question of economic growth. And I think it's been clear that China's growth has been flattening for a number of years, really going back to the 2008 financial crisis. And so China had been averaging double digit GDP growth per year for many years preceding 2008. You know, in the run up to COVID in 2019, its officially stated growth was around 6%. Um, most objective studies suggest that it's considerably lower than that. And so the sort of the explosive growth that really turned China from a, a poor and weak country into the powerhouse that we know today is really in the past. I think China is looking, looking toward more sluggish growth in the future. Add to that the fact that China is confronting severe resource problems, uh, largely as a function of overuse, and to the fact that it's approaching a real demographic catastrophe uh, that is going to uh, dramatically increase the uh, senior citizen population in the country in the coming years and dramatically decrease the working age population. And you're just going to have a country that's going to struggle to maintain the sort of growth that would be necessary to achieve the regime's goals domestically and internationally. And then you mentioned wolf warrior diplomacy, and this adds to a second uh, uh, argument that we make in the piece, which is that China is increasingly encircling itself strategically. It's provoking the hostility of countries that are well-placed to push back against its rise. And you can see this in the rise and in increasing activities of the Quad. You can see it in the AUKUS submarine deal. You can see it in a variety of the technological partnerships that have sprung up around uh, areas like semiconductors. There, there's still imperfect response to the Chinese challenge because so many countries remain dependent on trade with China, but we're seeing that sort of the welcoming open world that did so much to enable China's rise is vanishing and the Chinese are confronting an increasingly difficult geopolitical situation in the years ahead. Um, how do US policymakers need to be thinking about this position, right? Because in this window, the miscalculation concern, you know, I make the Martian analogy. If you were a Martian and you drop, you know, visited the United States in sort of like four year increments, 
you would actually not see a lot of capability increase and deterrence works until as long as the Chinese believe that they can't get away with it, right? The minute right. they look at it and go, hang on a second, we may actually have an edge here is when they miscalculate. Well, how do we need to think about this period? And what do we most importantly need to be doing right now, right? We've heard the alarm signal uh, from uh, Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall saying, you know, we're out of time. Um, I think many people would agree with that. What do we need to be doing? Well, I, I think there's a twofold challenge. And so one is that the United States needs to be prudent and it needs to be careful and it needs to be measured in its dealings with the Chinese regime. Because when you're dealing with an insecure uh, uh, power, the last thing you want to do is to make it feel as though it is in a corner and it has no choice but to lash out. And so for those reasons, I think a certain degree of dialogue with the Chinese leadership is actually useful, if only because it's an opportunity for the United States to convey clearly its concerns and its commitments, uh, and also to avoid uh, the possibility of miscalculation. At the same time, I think arguably the more important imperative is to strengthen the deterrent, which as you note, has arguably been weakening over the past 10 to 12 years, if not more. And I think one of the intellectual shifts we need to make is to stop thinking about uh, the possibility of a US-China confrontation, an actual conflict, as something that might happen in 2035 and start thinking about it as something that might happen in 2025. And to ask ourselves the question, if we only have two, three, four years to prepare for this, how would that change what we do? Presumably we would do more to diversify our posture in the Asia Pacific so that we are not so dependent on a few very vulnerable, vulnerable bases that the Chinese would undoubtedly hit with ballistic missiles and other munitions early in a conflict. We would presumably want to dramatically increase uh, our standoff and long-range strike and, and capabilities that we would use in, say, a Taiwan Strait scenario. We would presumably want to uh, help the Taiwanese field more of their own anti-access area denial capabilities, which would raise the cost and protract the timeline of a potential campaign against Taiwan from China's perspective. And I think we should be doing one thing the Biden administration, to its credit, is doing, which is trying to bring as many countries as possible into a coalition that would oppose uh, a Chinese assault on Taiwan or other hotspots. And so one of the reasons I think that Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense, is constantly flying around the Indo-Pacific region is that the more we can bring the Japanese into this, the more we can bring the Australians into this, the more we can bring other countries into this, the more of, their, of a deterrent there will be to the Chinese taking action. We, we talk about um, the importance of sort of a whole of government approach to this, right? A unity of effort. Um, how would you grade how the administration, how this administration uh, is, is doing? Because in many respects, it does appear to be aligning these arms, uh, but I'm more interested in how you view how they're doing and what the professor in you uh, would suggest in, in uh, sort of a Don rag, right? Like what, what, what could this student be doing better uh, to, to improve, uh, you know, at least, at least getting to that, to, to improving the deterrent game? So Whether on military, I, I, economic, diplomatic, or, you know, the whole dime thing. So I think that the administration has um, acted with varying degrees of urgency in different areas. And so there's been a lot of urgency around technological cooperation with other democracies. And I think they're doing 
quite well there. There has been a fair amount of urgency around um, the quad, for instance, particularly on non-security issues like COVID vaccines. And there has been a good degree of, of energy around kind of long-term security preparations, which the AUKUS deal really reflect. I think where there has been less urgency or less movement, I would flag two particular areas. And so one is that kind of the near-term posture enhancements have not been as robust, I think, as, as many of us would hope. And there was a bit of a flub with the Pacific Deterrence Initiative earlier this year. And if we do find ourselves uh, in a conflict with China in the next few years, and we should certainly hope that we do not, those will be some of the critical issues on the defense side. I, I think the other area I would flag um, where we've had trouble, and this isn't a problem that's unique to this administration, unfortunately, is that the trade component of U.S. policy has remained relatively anemic. We're, we're almost a year into the Biden administration, and we have yet to get uh, a really compelling vision for trade in Asia with the United States at its center. It's probably not going to be the Biden administration getting back into the Trans-Pacific Partnership, but we haven't really heard what might take its place. This is a problem, obviously, that went back to the Trump administration, which withdrew from the Trans-Pacific Partnership in the first place. And, and so the, the military dimension is obviously critical to near-term deterrence issues. The economic dimension is really important to the longer-term competition with China, because if China succeeds in putting itself at the center of the Asia-Pacific economy and the United States is, is gradually seen to withdraw from that economy or to put itself at the margins because it's not involved in deepening economic and investment relationships, we're going to find it harder and harder to maintain our influence over time. Let me ask you uh, two questions in the brief uh, time uh, we've got left. Um, would, you, would you add the United Kingdom and France to the quad? as uh, Dov Zakheim uh, and others uh, have argued uh, that we should? Well, in some ways, the French have already added themselves to the Quad, not, not formally, but they've begun participating in naval exercises with the Quad and looking for ways that they can do more in the Indo-Pacific region. The UK has been doing the same thing. I think that the question of whether they are formally involved in the Quad is in some ways less important than the more pragmatic question of what activities are we all willing to undertake together? And so I don't know that the membership issue is the defining issue, but I think absolutely the United States should be uh, urging and encouraging the French and the British uh, to continue to project power into the Indo-Pacific and to think about ways that they can help uh, the democracies compete with China in peacetime, but also push them to think about how they might respond to a Chinese uh, military assault on Taiwan or other contingencies uh, regarding conflict that might break out in the region. Let me ask you uh, two last uh, questions. One is uh, on Europe. Uh, you know, Washington has this neuralgia when it comes to uh, EU states wanting to spend more money uh, and then have more strategic autonomy, right? It's seen as a threat to NATO, even though all of these countries are NATO countries. And at the end of the day, I think the Europeans recognize we're going to spend more time and attention in Asia. Some of them know they're going to be spending more time in Asia. And ultimately, if they spend more money, they're going to buy weapons from their own industry and ultimately want a greater say uh, in, in what they do, uh, right? And these address every single one of the criticisms the United States has had. They don't spend enough money. They're not modernizing fast enough, and they keep bugging me for capability instead of being able to do for themselves. So ideally, this sounds 
how, like exactly what we've wanted, right? Why? Isn't it time for the United States, as the communique between President Biden and Emmanuel Macron suggested, is time to look at EU doing more for its own military capabilities, which ultimately will allow them to better stand up to Russia and support us in China? I mean, why is this seen as a net negative? Well, I, I think that in, in principle, there's absolutely nothing wrong with European countries developing stronger defense capabilities and integrating them to a greater degree and being able to take greater responsibility for uh, sort of collective defense in Europe. I think in, in practice, there have always been a variety of challenges with that. One is that there are collective action problems in Europe that the United States has always been uniquely able to solve. Two is that the, the leaders of the strategic autonomy movement in Europe, particularly the French, have a European security vision that's not always that appealing to countries in Eastern Europe like Poland. And so I, I think there are some political questions regarding whether there's sufficient cohesion of vision to make that a reality. But, but in general, I think the United States is going to need more from its European allies. And to the extent that they can do more to defend themselves from Russia so that the United States can focus on China. That, that's entirely a good thing. Uh, last question. Um, you know, everybody discusses what the window is, right? How, how large is the window in which America has to keep deterring China, right? I mean, this could be on a more, but it, it, obviously deterrence is a protracted endeavor, but what's the danger zone, right? Well, we heard from Phil Davidson, he said, you know, six years uh, when, mm-hmm. Uh, the Chinese might be in position to take Taiwan. Um, there are other leaders who've said it's it's only a couple of years. What's what's your window? You think so that we have deter- to sort of get our is, get our act together. So deterrence, as you said, I think is an ongoing phenomenon, and in some ways we've been deterring the Chinese and the Taiwan Strait for, depending on how you measure, twenty five years or seventy years or. Uh, quite a long time. I, I do think that the window of greatest vulnerability is probably in the latest, the later part of the 2020s. That's when I think the Chinese military options will look as good as they will, they ever will, because the Chinese military modernization will be more or less complete, or will at least be very mature. And the U.S. and Taiwanese defense plans will only be taking shape. And so, if I'm looking at sort of a danger zone, that's what I'm looking at in the U.S.-China relationship. Hal, thanks so much for joining us. Absolute pleasure always talking to you. Uh, Thanks for the time and bon voyage. Thanks very much. It was great speaking with you. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.